There are two types of destinations, those that are built and those that aren't. Vocabulary.com defines destination as a noun that comes from the Latin word destinare, meaning determine, appoint, choose. What goes into creating a place that becomes a chosen space to live, to explore, to rest? Where do you even begin? How do you avoid sameness? And what are the crucial building blocks that must be present in order to ensure a destination is one that lasts? Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast where we explore the ideas, issues, and trends that are being discussed within the design community today, as well as among clients and customers. Joining me on this episode are Rob Sykes, WATG's Associate Vice President and Director of Strategy, and Guy Cook, WATG's Senior Associate and Director of Strategy. Rob is a real estate economist whose extensive knowledge of the hospitality sector and global markets equips developers, investors, hospitality operators, and other stakeholders with the tools needed for effective project planning. Guy focuses on market analysis, development strategy, and financial feasibility for the hotel, resort, branded residential, mixed-use, and attraction sector. Both collaborate with WATG's design teams to ensure creative and future-proof solutions for clients and end-users. Rob joins me from the UK and Guy from Singapore. I want to start by asking, what are the first and fundamental questions that are needed to be asked and explored when you are presented with a space that is intended to be a destination? I mean, the first thing we need to do, Manita, is, is understand the client's vision, right? So we'll have a good work session with the client to understand exactly what they've got in their mind because they've been stewing over these these concepts and, and this what to do with this piece of land for often months or years before they come to us. So we don't want to run roughshod over that. So the most important thing is to understand what their vision is for the site and then bring in, go away and do our own research and go and get our own heads together and make sure we're bringing in fresh ideas and making sure it's market relevant. Guy, do you want to talk about some of the trends research that we do? I think, yeah, Manisa, that's, that's often one of the first places we'll start and, and, and perhaps in the kickoff meeting or the early conversations with the client, uh, if we bring to the table a selection of international trends and best practice that we're seeing in the in the sector in the space uh, innovation that we think is relevant for the project without leading them too far it often acts as a uh, i suppose uh, inspiration for a bit of a brainstorm with the clients and and helps to ascertain you know what they think uh, you know what what's their taste what and triggers those conversations to to kind of help evolve their vision uh, at that at that early stage it gets the ball rolling it helps with the ideation. Often it's a, it's a great place to, to start. What is the definition of a destination in your, in your perspective? I mean, the destination will be a place where the guest feels a real connection to that sense of place, right? And it's amazing how many, it's, it's a phrase that we've become somewhat numb to over the years, but amazing, amazing how many clients come to us and in their kickoff will say, we have to have Instagrammable moments, right? They want their, and, and we work mostly in resorts as well as urban, but particularly it's true of resort. They want their guests to have those images uh, that they can really relate to. It really defines that project. It defines that destination. It's great for PR and marketing. So it's funny how our design teams almost have to start 
from identifying those Instagrammable moments within the master plan and then reverse engineer the design to make sure you maintain that. So it's just having those strong identifying features within the resort that connects the guests to that destination sort of instantly through the, through those visuals. What are the building blocks do you think are needed to create and assemble a space like that? You know, it starts off with, you know, really understanding, obviously, the site, the site conditions, the site characteristics. And we work with our design teams very closely when it comes to that and analyzing the topography and uh, any uh, assets on the site, whether cultural, natural or whatever. Any what are those kind of key strengths, those key uh, elements that we can bring either from the site or from the surrounding context that can help to drive that narrative, that story that we can you know, build upon to create that destination. Secondly, it's looking, of course, at the competitive market and the supply and demand dynamics of the area to make sure that, of course, there is a viable operation that can be made there. Forbes, five years ago, reported that China had created some or had built some 600 cities since communism was formed back in 1949, 600 cities. And then now we're talking about, you know, hundreds more that are being built in Asia and Africa. How do you have cities compete with the likes of established destinations like London and Hong Kong or Singapore? Yeah. And you look at what they're doing in Saudi with the line and taking a totally reshaping what is a city. Yes. I mean, destinations, they sort of ebb and flow in their popularity at that sort of macro level, for sure. You know, there's certain cities that are flavor of the month and then they may fade away and other cities may rise to the top. And a lot of that comes down to the great hotels within them. Right. So what makes a destination? The tourism product, as we call it. So it's the hotels, it's the accommodation, it's the visitor attractions. What can you do when you're there? Mm-hmm. It's the F&B. What, what are the, the restaurant scene and the bar scene like in that destination? And there's a whole host of other factors. So hotels play a really key role in, in, in creating those destinations. Yes, we work at a micro level, at, a, at an asset level, but of course, they all sort of combine to create a great destination. I mean, we have a lot of clients that we've worked with over the years that are trying to totally reinvent, reimagine the location in which they're based. And they're like the early mover to catalyze development. We've worked a lot over the years with Temes in the Peloponnese in Greece, which is around, you know, a three-hour drive west of Athens. So it's out there on a limb and there hasn't been a whole lot of development, but they've put a huge investment into golf courses, great hotels, fantastic wellness facilities, great kids programming, holiday homes now. Mm. So because they've created that destination, they're now able to sell holiday homes off the back of it. So it's really, we, we work a lot with clients that are trying to reinvent destinations, which perhaps didn't have that original sort of prestige. So in terms of those building blocks you asked about, really, it's that visionary client where we started. It's what we're the strategy team. So having a creative strategy team who will give them market advice and develop, understand development economics. And then adding in the creativity of our dynamic design teams to uh, give the client a, a sort of market driven and future proof development. You mentioned Saudi Arabia and WATG developed the master plan for the Red Sea project, which is part of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 program. The whole idea of having tourism as another engine of uh, income and growth, uh, less of a reliance on oil as income. It's a massive project to create a tourism destination there. What are the challenges that you see, Guy? Well, I I think going back to to what Rob was saying, it's really creating a destination and uh, the built environment and the uh, accessibility 
uh, into a place that doesn't have uh, any of that infrastructure in place to date. You know, undoubtedly got some fantastic and stunning natural assets and a rich, deep culture to, to build these tourism destinations from. But aside from that, it's kind of a blank slate. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is a little bit of a leap of faith in terms of build it and they will come. Yeah. But it's also a fantastic opportunity to, I suppose, employ the latest and most innovative practices in resort and tourism development. And obviously, it helps to have uh, deep pockets in which to achieve that, to really create that destination, to add those elements, those building blocks that, that Rob mentioned, to, you know, to create this entirely new destination on the global tourism map. It's, it's a really ambitious project, and it's really exciting to see how it's, uh, how it's evolving. So yeah, really looking forward to seeing it come out of the ground. It's, it's a project, Manita, that Guy and I worked on back in 2017 with our master planning colleagues, helping to define the hospitality strategy in terms of how do we break down the keys between different hotel typologies and brand residential and looking at the different attractions. And I've, we've never worked on a project that's had more opportunities, but also more challenges, mm. right? It's going to mm. be, it's, and they're overcoming them one by one. They've done a fantastic Mm. job in securing partnerships with a lot of the best and most innovative hotel brands for these assets within phase one. They've got some fantastic designs for each of those hotels. The bridge is now constructed, but in terms of challenges, it's always been for the Red Sea Development Company, the environment, number one, right? In the age in which we live, we can't ignore the fact that often in the resort world, hospitality hasn't always had the most positive of impacts on natural environments. Mm-hmm. And they are, I mean, the, the working title for the Red Sea Project back in 2017 was called Pristine. And so that has remained their num- number one on their agenda was to sort of preserve the environment as best one can in terms of turtle nesting sites, mangrove, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure if you asked anyone from the client side there, they would say, yeah, sustainability in the environment, number one challenge. But then we're also thinking in terms of constructability. So we've been working very closely with Bureau Happold. How do we deal with constructability of these unique assets, low-lying islands off of the Red Sea coast? But also operationally, I've had many discussions with the hotel brands. You know, How do we attract the world's hospitality talent over to the Red Sea coast of Saudi Arabia to work and service these? numerous hotels. So the client, they're creating fantastic staff villages that really go above and beyond what you would expect to find for um, hospitality staff in the region. Mm. So there's a whole host of major challenges which they're overcoming one by one. We're talking about what, some 28,000 square kilometers of land here and an archipelago of over 90 islands and lagoons. That's a massive project, right? It is. It, it really is. Yeah. I mean, it, you can't get your head around it. So no. phasing, <laughs> phasing, phasing, phasing. Phasing, but it, it is also required to be massive in order to have that critical mass of components and concepts and, and to justify the huge in, investment in infrastructure, basic infrastructure in order to open the destination. Uh, yeah. its own airport, for example, bringing these staff accommodation and villages and the utility requirements and investments uh, from that side that is required. You know, in terms of economies of scale, you you kind of need to go big in order to justify that level of investment. How do you avoid sameness? For example, you know, I read in the Telegraph, Qatar has developed this resort that mimics the Maldives, the resorts that you will find in the Maldives. 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, I, I really think the tourist is becoming savvier and more demanding when it comes to uh, differentiation of product, but, but most importantly, authenticity and uh, ensuring that the destination that they're visiting is, is fully reflective uh, of the local context and culture. Yeah. And that's a really important part of what we do and what WATG look to do at the very early stages of any project is what are what is that essence of local uh, assets or local culture or local seam of local elements that we can make sure is translated through, whether it's into the concept, whether it's into the programming and things to do, mm. or whether it's into the architectural vernacular. It needs to be of the place. And if you're just doing cookie cutter Maldives here, there, everywhere, you know, you need to have an angle, you need to have a differentiator, mm. um, or else, as you say, what's your, why would people go there? And I think increasingly, the tourists will expect that, uh, that authenticity to be um, shining through. Mm. And I guess if you look across the Red Sea, up to Sharm el-Sheikh and go around on Google Earth, you'll just see horseshoe resort after horseshoe resort, mid-rise. Mm. And where, how do you differentiate? Yeah. And it, when we're designing resorts around the world, a lot of the work that Guy and I do is setting the brief for the architects. So doing the area schedules. And there are certain things that you should do and certain things you shouldn't do it in terms of scaling a hotel to make the economics work. Um, you can't push things too far before it becomes a real trophy asset and the economics will, will underperform. But all the magic in terms of differentiation comes through the design process, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly these days in the interior design and the landscape design. So interiors-wise, Guy has been working a lot very closely with our Wimbley Interior Studio on creating some very forward-thinking F&B concepts that are real standout features of, of the hotels that we design. And, uh, and our landscape team, too, are really sort of capturing the essence of you know, the zeitgeist of, of consumers wanting to connect back with nature and what that means for the mm. world of resorts and creating landscape experiences that are totally different than you would have found in those horseshoe resorts of Sharm el-Sheikh that were designed back in the 90s. So a huge amount of creativity, not just in the architecture, but particularly on the interiors and the landscape, which are the parts of the resort that the guest really touches and feels and, and, and has that sort of connection with. On, on the landscape, uh, you know, totally agree, Rob. And especially in tropics uh, over here in, in Asia, you know, one of the key ways in which you can differentiate a you know, remote island sites or a rainforest site is through creating or recreating the original habitats that would have been on that site or, or island. So regenerative uh, landscape strategies with the reintroduction of indigenous species, flora and fauna. And, and that's such a great story that I really feel that, you, you know, you could do that in very in, in many different destinations, but mm -hmm. it would always be authentic to that location and uh, allows the guests to, to to really experience you know nature at its uh, you know at its purest. Uh, so our, our landscape team are, are doing a lot of that, and it's a it's a wonderful part of sustainability and sustainable practice, bringing back what would have been there before, but has since been uh, degraded. Because sustainability and the issues around our planet right now are front and center. If you take a look at an established destination like Hawaii, right? They are having conversations right now where it's about the evolution of a tourist destination. The WATG Honolulu team were talking about a solution called Green Block. David Moore, the president and CEO of WATG, described it as a tangible vision of what's possible for the future 
of destination design and sparks a conversation as we rethink how we live. Are we going to see more of these kind of conversations now in other parts of the world and other destinations? Without doubt. Yeah. I mean, the, the topic of ESG for me is the most important topic in the world of hospitality. The environmental impact, mm -hmm. it's the social impact and its governance. And for the last 10 years, that has been more limited to sustainability, which remains front and center as it rightly should. But ESG bringing in a much broader range of issues that we can help to control and we can help to shape and guide our clients. So looking more than just the environmental impact, but looking at the societal impact in particular, helping guide our clients so that their project has a more positive impact on the location in which it's located in terms of job creation, of course, the economic uplift, but looking at training, the knowledge sharing, looking at maybe creating resorts which are a little bit more permeable, so less of a gated resort environment and looking at, again, coming back to that theme of authenticity that Guy mentioned, letting guests out to connect more with the locale and the society in which they're, they're visiting, but also, you know, inviting locals into the resort to give it a bit more of a sense of, of place. So I think that that's mm. key. And then in terms of obviously governance as well, equal rights, employment and all of those things. So we definitely are taking ESG seriously. And I think any resorts that don't will get left behind because the evidence shows that consumers in general, in a broader sense, are choosing to push their money in the direction of firms in which demonstrate best practice and a commitment to sustainability and ESG. And that's definitely true in the hospitality sector. So there is a commercial side to it as well as as a more sort of holistic, aspirational angle. When you look at conversations like that that are being had, we also have to look at now perhaps one of the more important elements is in terms of what our priorities are, not just as a user, but as a designer as well, what our priorities are and how have they changed in the last few years? In terms of the consumer, I would say the pandemic has, has has really accelerated a number of the trends we were seeing in the in the in the years in the lead up to the pandemic and the in a post pandemic environment already we're seeing uh, a major shift in the way that we design and program resort environments i think one example would be the emphasis on on wellness it's an obvious one of course and how heightened our own demands and desires are and expectations, I should say, when it comes to wellness and wellness experiences. It starts off in our home destinations. You know, if we have uh, tourists coming from Singapore or, or London or Paris or, you know, the service of the fitness, healthcare, wellness space has improved so, so much and the expectations have grown that when people go on holiday and to the resort environment, their expectations or their expectations are that that quality will be there. In fact, they would really like it or expect it to be uh, exceeded. You know, they want to be surprised, but it's a key focus area. And of course, you know, wellness tourism is nothing new and it's been, it's been growing, as I say, for a number of years. And there's some fantastic products in the market, whether it's Six Senses or over here, Banyan Tree or Chiva Salm on the more medical side. You know, it, it isn't anything new. But now when we're approaching any luxury resort development, we have to take a much more holistic view about wellness and, and what are the experiences on offer. And as we were mentioning before, it, it's about contextualization. What can we draw from the site and the surrounding context that will make it unique and different, surprising, engaging for the, for the guests? You know, the, the spa traditionally used to sit on a, a you know, relatively low value piece of 
land on the site and we would consider how big it is, how many treatment rooms and, you know, not, you know, not go too much further on a standard luxury resort. Whereas now we're dedicating prime spot with great views for sunrise, sunset yoga or relaxation spaces or biophilic design that brings the nature in and, you know, adds to the overall well-being of the guest. Interesting onsen concepts and hot geothermal springs and, uh, you know, all, all very, as I say, contextual. But it's a really interesting side of the market and one that's a, it's a challenge for us, for sure, but a really interesting side of what we're doing. The other I'd say is multi-generational travel. Mm-hmm. Again, it's something undoubtedly that's been in the market and growing in, in, in prominence and importance for a number of years. But the pandemic, of course, as we were all separated for, from our loved ones for such a long time, there has been this huge push since for uh, tourists wanting to reconnect with their loved ones during vacation time and on holiday and what better way than to go off to an amazing resort destination with your loved ones and engage and create these fantastic memories together but that that again causes huge implications for us from a resort design perspective we have to completely relook at what is the accommodation offering on uh, of this resort you know it's no longer a case it can just be standard guest suites we need to think about family suites interconnecting rooms, larger villa typologies. If you've traveled with kids to a standard resort, often it just is not fit for purpose. But we also need to be quite considerate that the family segment typically is very seasonal. It'll only be there you know, during the school holidays. So you can't design a hotel just for that market. It needs mm-hmm. to have flexibility built into it. So we need to think about lock-off rooms and clever designs so that when that family and big group market isn't there, we can convert back to uh, appealing just to our standard double occupancy crowd to make sure that the occupancy levels, the appeal is uh, it's consistent and the revenues can be optimized for the client. Amenities as well, we need to think about as well, of course, you know, what do these multi-generational groups want to do together? How can they create these memories? That different approach to wellness, I think you, 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 you hit the nail on the head and you know, it's no longer just about looking after the body and yeah. focusing on massage and spa treatments. It's a much more holistic look at yourself and your mental health, the connections you have with the world, with the natural environment and your community and your family. I think it's about self-transformation. But it comes down to the economic viability of this project, right? How do you balance all of those things that are really important in today's world, whether it is ESG, whether it is mental and emotional well-being, and making a profit as well? How do you put all of those together so that it does work really well? You're right, Manita. If we pulled all of our you know, most creative ideas into a pot and gave them to a client, the project would likely be unviable, right? We can't have, you know, the whiz-bang spa concepts and multiple outrageous F&B concepts and crazy over-the-top kids clubs and still get their IRR where it needs to be. So we have to balance it. We are sensible. Spas in particular, they're incredible pieces of uh, expensive pieces of kit to -hmm. install. And it was the go-to response back in the early 2000s or mid-2010s. But particularly today when construction costs are just inflating by the day. We have to think very cleverly about how we can create that strong wellness offering, but without spending crazy money on a 3,000 square meter spa. 
And that again comes back into the landscape. How can we use the outdoor areas? How can we create pop-up treatment cabins, uh, wellness paths, holistic gardens? You know, maybe we can flex up our treatment room provision in the peak season through cabanas in the landscape. So trying to be clever about how we deploy our capex. In terms of us setting the brief for the hotel, we've always got to make sure that the guest rooms, which is where you make clearly make most of your money and also most of your profit, because the operating expenses are relatively lower. You need to make sure that that represents a good proportion of your overall buildable area, right? So you don't want to end up with a resort where the guest rooms are only 40% of your gross floor area and all of the trimmings are the 60%. No, no, no. So we need to not forget that rooms are front and center in terms of the economics, but in terms of how we position it from a visitor experience, a guest experience, it's often those added extras that need to come to the fore. Mm-hmm. So always balancing what makes money with what creates a great destination which doesn't necessarily have a, a great ROI on its own. Getting that balance right is, is crucial. How do you maintain that local appeal too for those who are local? The, I mean, yeah. the staycation thing has been really interesting to track, right? Because it was forced upon us. Yes. But everyone had fantastic experiences reconnecting with destinations in their own backyard. And I think that that will endure. Obviously, it's faded this year as people have begun to travel more, going back to resorts. But I think they will bounce back. And they know that staycationing is a really viable and fun and hopefully more affordable option. So I still feel optimistic about investment and development, particularly here in the UK and in Western Europe, those drive-to markets. Fundamentally, people always want to travel. And you look back at the last great recession of 2008, 2009, and one industry that didn't really falter was travel and hospitality, because no matter how hard people are finding things, they still want to treat themselves and their family to their one big vacation in the summer holiday. So I feel like the hospitality world, in a broader sense, is able to weather the storms of the global ebbs and flows of the recession mm-hmm. and economies. But in terms of traveling overseas, I mean, people do want to disconnect from the reality of their day-to-day and go and experience places that they haven't been before. And I think that's a, a generational thing as well, right? If I think back to my parents, the boomers generation, and they would often repeat visit. Yes. They would find their favorite resort in Greece or Southern Spain, and they'd go back time and time again. Maybe it was they're a little bit more tentative about traveling and exploring new places. If they know it works for them, then stick with it. Whereas our generation, dare I say, a little more adventurous in terms of wanting to explore, you know, different bucket list destinations, have totally new experiences, elements of surprise. So for hotels, that's difficult because you can't rely on that solid baseline of demand of repeat visitors. You have to work really hard to get repeat visitation and you have to spend a lot more on your PR and marketing to make sure you're, you're appealing to new visitors year after year after year. If you are a developer, How important is it to make sure that what you are developing is good for the people who live near your development? It's fundamental. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of staffing as well, you know, assuming that a proportion of the staff are going to be coming from the local community and and, and that ability to have a trickle down effect or not even trickle down effect, a multiplier effect from the money coming in that's flowing into the local community. You know, staffing at the moment is, is such a hot topic. There's well-documented mm-hmm. shortages of tourism and hospitality staff globally. 
you know, I think staff well-being is well, one of the better approaches to it. And and some of our clients are picking up the mantle and, and really looking at it from the earliest stage of design and development, as Rob mentioned on the Red Sea projects, but also we're seeing it in, in the Maldives and here in Vietnam as well, where creating fantastic staff accommodation, staff amenity, but also really considering the back of house spaces, which often designers will overlook especially those designers who aren't traditionally from the hospitality space who come in and do hotels it's this is something that requires that expertise and if you get it wrong then not only is the hotel not efficient in terms of operations which has obviously negative impacts on the bottom line for the the developer but in many ways more importantly it has negative impacts on the staff well-being as well the ability to retain and or attract and retain great staff is fundamental. One of our clients, Pontiac Land, big developer based here in, in Singapore, and developing the uh, a new destination in, in the Maldives. It's a four-island master plan uh, on an atoll called the Fari Islands, and there's three luxury resorts that it's going to comprise, a Ritz-Carlton, a Capella, and a, a Patina. Uh, the fourth island they have dedicated, it's around 12 hectares, purely for back of house, staff accommodation, staff amenities. And it's all been designed very much with community, staff well-being uh, in mind. And I have no doubt that in time, it, that investment and that innovation will pay dividends for them mm -hmm. in terms of their ability to compete for the best talent in, in the Maldives. And I think it's, a, it's those kind of pioneering projects and developers that are willing to take that risk that really need to be followed and uh, uh, closely and, and are a great example for the for the industry and I, and I think we need to it goes without saying that in that guests and communities intersect a lot closer in an urban setting than they do in a resort setting right so we've seen this huge wave and upsurge of lifestyle hotels in urban settings which are creating, particularly in the public areas, they're very much targeting the local population as well as, you know, for the enjoyment of the hotel guests. So vibrant lobby spaces, touchdown work environments, creating bars and restaurants, which are proper destinations for any local businessmen and women, local residents, students. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're like, you know, let's get a drink and some dinner at the Hoxton in Holborn. Mm -hmm. It's just as, it, as if it's another F&B venue rather than it being a hotel's restaurant, mm -hmm. you know. So mm -hmm. that real crossover of the, of, of, in an urban context of hotels, public spaces as community facilities, I think that's a lot more obvious, that overlap in an urban context than it is perhaps in, in a resort context. You know, one of the great challenges will be how to, how to create that same sense of community in a resort setting, in a remote resort setting, where you don't have the local population necessarily to, yeah. to fill the public areas and to create that sense of animation and community. And, and one way I think that will, will, will really help that going forward is this new notion of hybrid working, work from anywhere, longer stays, digital nomads, and it's going to be in their interests, these brands, as they move into the resort space, to really appeal to those, to those longer stay guests. So you forge that sense of community. You may see subscription models. A word that I often rebel against is realistic. Be realistic or, you know, you have to think of the reality of the world today or the realities of the world today. 
So I asked this question with some trepidation. How do you balance optimism with realism? Yeah, Manita, you're talking to two real estate economists here. So <laughs> yeah. we are the biggest realists in the building. I know. <laughs> um, so sorry about that. But we've had to, we have to, re- it's, it's our biggest challenge professionally, working within a design firm that inherently works with the most visionary clients yes. in the world in terms of hospitality development. We have to sometimes suspend disbelief and try and find that balance. We have to push ourselves because often we're, we're not always right but we have to give pragmatic advice. We have to think about things in terms of capex. So when our design colleagues want to design 50 meter cantilevered glass bottom swimming pools, <laughs> you have to put your hand up and say, hang on a minute. So, but no, we, we do try and find that balance. It's to the magic of the design and the creativity and the innovation, but also balancing the economics of it. And that's what, give, what gives us credibility. That's why our clients come to us because we, we do mm. give them something that's buildable, that's developable, but it does push the boundaries conceptually as well. And then we look at the macroeconomics and we monitor very closely for the company, for the board, as well as for our clients, with the ebbs and flows of GDP growth and the flows of money geographically, where the, where's investment going? What are the big sort of black swan events that might be on the horizon? Largely speaking, whilst all of that is of course, very important moment, inflation and interest rates. When it comes to these projects, we're talking five years out, at least before they open their doors, right? So a client comes to us, it's probably five years before they're able to open doors by the time they go through the feasibility, uh, the design, get the permitting, construction. It's easily a four to five year process. So who's to say what the state of the market and the economy will be in five years time so we are able to suspend disbelief sometimes and take a slightly more optimistic stance otherwise Mm. we would be uh, very much seen as the naysayers which we don't (laughs) want to be what kind of destinations excite you and what locations do you see there to be a lot of growth in the next decade should we start with you guy where i'm based in singapore you know we have access to just a fantastic region that is so much opportunity for fantastic tourism experiences. We're working a lot in Vietnam at the moment. And the, you know, if there's a place that I have been just consistently surprised by the depth and breadth of the tourism experiences on offer, both in terms of the natural environment and the diversity of natural environment and the and the cultural environment and the diversity there both in the urban and in the coastal and mountain, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It really is phenomenal. And it's a very exciting time. We're seeing a shift and growing demand amongst the clients to really look at what they have in terms of the cultural aspects and starting to to look at that and think, how can we really weave that into our destinations, which is, of course, music to our ears. Oftentimes, in, when we're first working more emerging destinations, there is a desire to copy the, the more advanced destinations and just do copy-paste, copy-paste. There's a missed opportunity to really look at, okay, no, wait, what have we got here? What, are, what is the essence of this place? This is, this is the gold here. You've got this these fantastic elements that can be brought into this destination. And and we're really starting to see that shift now. So there's some really exciting 
concepts uh, popping up as a result of that. And, and it takes this long relationship building with our clients, with our longstanding clients to go through this process to in some ways convince uh, in some ways show proof that, that this is the right way to go. And it's a really exciting time in, in, in that regard. What about you, Rob? Well, for me, it will be the Mediterranean. And the reason being that through the 80s and particularly the 90s, there was a wave of development. All of the best sites in Spain, in the Balearics, around southern France and Italy, and the Algarve were built out by local developers. They were projects that were of a time. They were regionally owned. And now they're a little tired, but they're in the best locations. They're on the best beaches, the best views. And we're at a point where international money funds are coming in and able to purchase these fantastic sites and reinvent these assets. And we're having a lot of fun in our London office working on these renovation and repositioning strategies because the number of new build sites in prime locations in the Mediterranean are few and far between now. And permitting is much, much harder to achieve than it was back in the day. So the opportunity for me lies in acquiring these tired assets in the best location and creating something truly special. So that requires a really collaborative approach between us as, as strategists to work alongside our architects, uh, the landscape team and the interiors team to really reinvent these, these properties into something that's much better attuned to uh, today's and tomorrow's guest expectations. One other uh, area that I think we're all seeing post-pandemic in particular is which is really exciting is the uh, off-grid destination Mm. going out and places that are previously either very difficult to get to or that people just hadn't considered for for tourism development and that could be you know up in the arctic or antarctica Mm. for polar tourism or it could be remote islands in you know french polynesia uh, or it could be in the empty quarter in Saudi Arabia, you know, creating these incredible off-grid, one-of-a-kind experiences that would you know, clearly be, you know, a truly transformational experience just to go. Uh, they are incredibly exciting and obviously come with a whole set of challenges in terms of that remoteness, in terms of that lack of infrastructure, in terms of how far is the guest willing to willing to go to travel to get there for that incredible experience and then obviously from a sustainability and light touch approach brings all sorts of um, challenges but challenges that I think that we're increasingly able to take on. What are the elements of a destination that could be defined as the soul of the space? I think the most important things in in creating that that soul or that essence is I think from the guest perspective the sense of arrival how do you feel when you arrive to that property that first impression and going into guys stepping into guys region I was amazed when we were down in um, in Bali looking at some properties and they do that very well Mm -hmm. from the drop-off entering the building the way the lobby opens up with some spectacular views I'm thinking down in Uluwatu and just that wow effect when you arrive at the property and how you instantly decompress after a long journey and instantly feel, feel relaxed. So I'd say the sense of arrival, clearly the guest room is important. Guest room is, of course, where you spend a lot of your time. It's where it's that arrival experience. And then it's obviously having the comfort of the bedroom. And then it's having these exceptional show-stopping um, pool areas. For me, that's the essence of the, the resort hotel. 
It's about the people. Yeah. It's about the other guests, but it's about the staff and the smiles on their faces. That's the that's the soul, and you can quickly tell whether you know staff are happy in a uh, in a in a resort. And um, you know, it's 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 just so important for the and uh, the guest end experience. What does design and planning done right look like? Well, I think fundamentally, Guy and I haven't done our job if the investor isn't getting the ROI that they need. So planning uh, and uh, and design done right gives our clients a return on investment. If you're interviewing the designers, they will tell you it's the guest experience, which of Mm -hmm. course is true for us, but we're looking after the client's best interests economically. So for me, the viability of the project is essential for us. It's getting that mix of the components right to make the the project really tick in terms of placemaking, but also in terms of the economics. For WATG, it's the unique thing that we we offer, right, Rob? It's, It's such a joy as a real estate economist and you know coming from the development side and the hotel operations side to work in a design studio yeah uh the work in this creative space where you're walking past plans and and you're seeing our research and our conversations with the clients with the operators with third-party feasibility teams you know translated into ideas that are going on the plan and it's a back and forth exercise and seeing that research and that work kind of come to life in, in real time is is hugely rewarding but it is a balancing act it, it can't all be about the numbers and it can't all be about the design it's yeah. that back and forth so for us to be able to do that internally together is great that's wonderful thank you so much both of you for your time and your expertise and sharing your thoughts with us um it has truly been an interesting conversation for me i've always loved to travel and and experience new places but to also explore what could be defined as a new destination is it's an interesting thing to think about especially today with the various and the new issues that we all have to face and that are also part of the conversations as well so both of you thank you so much no thank you it's been a pleasure it's been fantastic thank you (laughs) That was Rob Sykes, WATG's Associate Vice President and Director of Strategy, and Guy Cook, Senior Associate and Director of Strategy. You've been listening to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast. I'm Monita Rajpal. Thank you for joining us.